Hello and welcome to the Belong Beyond podcast. My name is Sirka Keen. I'm Projects Coordinator with Axis Ballymun and I'm the host of this podcast. The Belong Beyond project is a collaboration between the Dublin City Libraries and Axis Ballymun and is funded by the Dormant's Account Fund. This podcast is a series of conversations with artists and guests in each of the Dublin City Library branches. Over the past few months, I've been on a journey of discovery, visiting each of the Dublin City branches, meeting the staff that keep everything running and learning the ins and outs of the library service. I've spoken to visual artists, historians, musicians and storytellers about art, culture, heritage and, of course, libraries. So on behalf of the Dublin City Libraries and Access Ballymun, I invite you to join us each week as we hear from the people who create art and culture for us about how it feels and what it means to them. Beagilin! Each artist I interviewed was paired with one of the Dublin City Libraries. In this episode, Dermot Balger was paired with Drumcondra Library and Liz Nugent with Pembroke Library. Hi, my name is Liz Nugent and I am a... Uh, full-time writer. Um, the books so far are Unravelling Oliver, Lying in Wait, Skin Deep and Our Little Cruelties. Thanks very much Liz and thanks very much for, for joining us today. We're in Pembroke Library um, and for this episode of the, the Belong Beyond podcast we're talking about why we love books. So I might start with that. Um, why do you love books? Why do Well it goes back a long way I suppose to when I was a child. I mean, I was an avid, really avid reader from a very young age. I was always in trouble for having the light on too late. Uh, and, and I shared a bedroom with my sister and I used to drive her absolutely up the wall because the light would be on. She was trying to get to sleep, but I had my bedside light on because, I, you know, I was reading. And then um, I... Uh, somewhere along the way, I discovered that you could have a torch under the duvet so I did that instead and um, yeah reading reading was second nature to me and also because I was a sick kid and I was in and out of hospital a lot of the time I think nowadays when children are, are in hospital they're given an iPad or a screen to keep them mm-hmm. occupied and keep them busy but I'm 53 so in my in my childhood there was no such thing so the escape was books mm-hmm. and you know when particularly if you're in pain, in physical pain, um, to escape into a book is a wonderful thing. So that's where my love of books started, I guess. And how have you found that change as you made the transition from a reader into a writer? God, I still love books. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I still, I mean, a lot of writers will say that they don't read while they're writing. I read every single day, every single night. I average about five or six books a month so um that's what one and a half books a week mm-hmm. um I read broadly because I think um you, you when you're be, just because my um genre that I'm writing is kind of domestic noir it's on the edge of the sort of crime fiction world um I like to be influenced by other genres so I, I read a lot of uh, genre commercial fiction I read a lot of literary fiction I've even read some like fantasy and horror stuff you know um I haven't gone down the road of graphic novels yet but uh I'm sure there's plenty of time I like historical fiction you know a bit bit of everything I suppose I'm quite a broad reader because I think it's important to have broad influence when you're a writer 
And do you find that that's where you draw influence for storylines or does that come from elsewhere in a creative world or in in the kind of the the wider world in general? Well, I'm definitely influenced by other writers. In fact, I wouldn't be a writer. I wouldn't have embarked on my first novel at all if it wasn't uh, for reading and then working on a stage production of The Book of Evidence by John Manville. And I was so taken by the character of Freddie Montgomery that that sowed the seeds for me for the character of Oliver in my first novel, Unraveling Oliver. And very shortly after um, I worked on that production and read that book very closely and worked on that script very closely, I read Engleby by Sebastian Fox, which is similarly a first-person narration of somebody who has done a very bad thing and uh, so those were serious influences so other writers definitely influenced my work and you know if you look at Unraveling Oliver you'll find elements of most of my favourite books in there Mm -hmm. like there's you know I steal a little bit from everybody (laughs) but hopefully I hide it well enough Um, but there's a little bit of the secret history in there there's a little bit of I know this much is true. There's there's a lot of um, Shakespeare because, you know, if you're going to steal, steal from the best. Absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so other writers have been... Uh, and playwrights as well because I worked in theatre for a long time before I, I wrote books. So theatre would have been a big influence. Playwrights. Great. Um, and one you, you mentioned um, Unraveling Oliver there, one of the characters that it's it's somebody who's done something pretty awful a lot of the characters in your book I'm thinking of Our Little Cruelties mm. they're quite grey on the the moral scale is that where does that come from where is that fascination I, I'm fascinated by um, the psychology of um, and not that I have a degree or any specific knowledge in psychology or psychiatry, but I'm fascinated by people and I'm fascinated by people who get away with things in everyday life. Like, and I, I think it's the reason why people are, 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 you know, drawn to crime novels, particularly in the last couple of years. I mean, the crime fiction world has, has, has um, dominated the best-selling charts and I think it's because people turn to crime novels because they get justice at the end and the bad guy gets caught but in reality the bad guy doesn't get caught the bad guy is elected to the White House or to 10 Downing Street or you know you know bad guys get away with it all the time and um, uh, I think that was certainly an influence in my in my books uh, they tend to get away with it. Mm. Um, in Unraveling Oliver, Oliver kind of got away with it. And then in another sense, he didn't. Um, in Lying in Wait, it, like in each of them, the the protagonists or antagonists, I should say, are punished, but not through the courts. They have a different kind of punishment that is meted out through circumstance or you know they are punished but not in the routine cops and robbers way the, the formal way that we're used to yeah or we 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 hope would be uh the way that people get their their comeuppance did you find then you know over the past number of months 
two years as it is now nearly, people are are looking for some form of escape. Did you find yourself escaping even more into the books that you read? Do you, did you have a chance to write or were you looking for for escape as a as a reader and, and for entertainment as a reader? Um, I suppose at the beginning of the the pandemic I I was kind of paralyzed with fear and I did lose my father during it uh, not to COVID but you know um, he had dementia and there was four months where we couldn't visit him in the home that he was in and that was really hard and I I've, I found it impossible to write I mean I really um, I was paralyzed by it so I again my escape was reading so I read more than ever in the last two years than I've more than I've ever read before mm-hmm. um, I was eating books inhaling books as an escape mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. to get away from the bad stuff and I do think you know if if you're prone to depression or if you're um, that books can help you know they let you escape the bad stuff in your mind. I mean, there's nothing like picking up Pride and Prejudice to, you know, just take you out of yourself or Rachel's Holiday or, you know, something that, you know, is, you know, far removed from you but is yet mild and funny and interesting and entertaining, you know, um, to take you out of your own um, self... Uh, not self-obsession, but you know what I mean? Your mm-hmm. self-worries, Provides anxiety. a perspective. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It provides a different way of looking, I suppose, yeah. at the world and trying to, to find a way to make sense of things even I, yeah, weekly. Yeah, I, I think that's yeah. how I've always been. I mean, if I'm not reading a book, I have the radio on because I don't want to think. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I actually have to stop myself from thinking because if I think about things too much, I would get very, very depressed. So, yeah, I use it all as a form of escape. I don't know how healthy that is, but it's worked for me so far. So that would be music as well as, as yeah. yeah, books. Yeah. Music, books, radio, um, newspaper, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You know, I'm a massive consumer of all media. So you mentioned that you worked in theatre for many years and that some of your influences came from playwrights and from theatre. Did you find the the lack of live over the past number of months difficult or were you so kind of entranced in the books that you were reading that you you found that you got an escape a sufficient escape that way um I have to say really it was the thing I I missed most was live theater I went to a play for the first time two uh two weeks ago and um, there was there was nothing like it. I was I felt so celebratory about being back in a darkened auditorium. Um, uh, books didn't quite replace that because there's something about there's something about people being in a place in front of you, being there, being present to perform a production for you specifically and the other people in the room on a particular night that reading a book doesn't give you. And of course, there was lots of theatre online. A lot of theatre companies pivoted fairly quickly and started putting productions up online. And um, they were great. But at the same time, unless they were live streamed, you didn't get that experience of being 
at a live production. Some of them did live stream, and that was good because you could see comments from people viewing it as they were viewing it or or afterwards you know and it felt it felt like a live experience yeah that kind of great collective yeah uh, coming together yeah absolutely and will you be back on the road promoting in in live formats do you think or will you do you think that that kind of digital element will be something that you'll harness yourself in your own work Uh, well I think I think book promotion is probably going to be a hybrid thing from now on um book festivals will always exist but i think what they have probably learned and uh, it was a valuable lesson to me that so many people who suffer from either social anxiety or physical disability or various things who wouldn't normally go to a book festival were able to watch writers online because the book festivals a lot of them things up online or put readings up online and um, the library services did too. So th- there was so much online stuff that I think from now on um, we can become more inclusive so that maybe you you can go and see the writer live and you can get your book signed. That's the only difference really is that you can meet the writer face to face, have a chat, get your book signed um, and but online, you can, you can attend the same talk, um, uh, and maybe if they put that up, you know, for a fiver online after the event. Whereas to see the live experience, you pay whatever, fifteen or twenty quid. I don't know how much these things cost. I never know. But if they put it in for up for a, a lower fee for the online stuff, mm. um, it'll open up um, new audiences as well because people can watch from America or Australia or India or, you know, anywhere in the world. Mm. So I think, you know, there's lots of opportunities to be had in the online world that we wouldn't have known about if it hadn't been for COVID. Mm. Our friend COVID. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, And you mentioned the library services and I suppose we should we should mention we're we're recording here in in Pembroke Library. did you have a relationship with the libraries as a child and as a as a young person? Yeah, my aforementioned dad uh, used to take me to the library um, every Saturday when I was a kid because, you know, my parents separated when I was quite young. So um, there's not a lot of places dads can take children to um, when you're when you're small so yeah. the library was it was it for me. So I always associated libraries with paternal love I suppose so um yeah they're very special to me so you would be looking at the kids section of the books and he'd be reading the newspaper say or getting his own books no what we used to do is he would take out a book and I would take out a book and then we would go back to wherever he was living and uh I would read my book and then he would read my book and then we would discuss it. Sometimes I would read his book. So I remember reading a biography of Barbara Streisand when I was about nine. (laughs) You know, funny things like that. And, uh, you know, Jonathan Livingston Siegel, you know, when I was... Because, uh, is it Richard Bachman or Richard Bach who wrote that? I can't remember the name of the writer. But it's kind of a philosophical book, but... That that was the book that you know really cemented my um, my passion for books and and my dad. You know what I mean? That the two of them were 
very much. Like he had it on his shelf till the day he died. Wow. You know. Yeah. And I have it on my bookshelf now. And what a, an amazing exposure for a future writer to be reading the books from the, the young adult or the child section and then also getting exposure yeah. to all of these books and the interests of yeah. your dad as well. Yeah. Um, that's a really powerful kind of start but yeah. for, for anybody, but particularly for someone who turns out to be a full-time author. Yeah. Wow, what a gift. Have you found that your relationship with libraries, has that changed now that you're an author, now that your books maybe are, are housed in the library collections? Um, I, well, the one thing I don't have to do anymore is borrow books from libraries because I get sent so many books. I mean, I get sent probably six or seven books a week from other publishers looking for an endorsement quote or a blurb or whatever. So or, or if there's a book coming out that I'm interested in, I just have to, you know, write to the publisher or, you know, um, and I can afford to actually buy books and I'm quite acquisitive about books. So I like having them on my shelves. So I don't borrow from libraries anymore, but I do go to libraries to work mm-hmm. Um because sometimes if you're if you're writing in your office on your own, you're missing out on the world outside and libraries are full of life. And sometimes you just need to go and observe life. And there's nobody. I mean, in the old days, the librarian always said, quiet, please. <laughs> and there's no more of that. Like people are not expected to be silent mm-hmm. in, li- in libraries. I mean, they're expected to sort of respect other people and the children's area is always separate so they can run around and be rowdy. But occasionally you'll see a child running mayhem through the adult section. And that's, that's kind of wonderful to see. And it puts me back in the world because I, sometimes I find myself too isolated when I'm working from home all the time. So, yeah, I, I would uh, write often in Dean's Grange Library or the Lexicon in Dunleary or my Down the Road Library, which is Black Rock. Great. So, yeah, they're great places to work. All, all recently, well, the Lexicon, obviously, uh, brand new, well, five years old or something, but uh, both Dean's Grange and Black Rock have had major renovations mm. over the last couple of years, and I really appreciate the investment that has been made in libraries to make them comfortable and accessible for everybody. Mm. And now, um, for people who, who don't want to go to the library, they can download books online from the library services without ever having to leave their homes. I mean, the libraries have, I mean, I think that's one of the best things about being a writer, actually, is the fact that my work can be read by anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't have, it's, cost should not be a barrier. Like the price of a book does not stop you reading my work. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that about being a writer. Yeah. It, there's no impediment to reading me whatsoever. Yeah, which is amazing. Yeah. And it is something definitely that we're very lucky to have the libraries uh, for free as we do. And I think uh, not all places have such a, a, a gem at their disposal. So before we finish up, then I just want to ask you about the Irish Book Awards Library Reader's Choice. You've been nominated. I am. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm really thrilled about that because, you know, library readers, I think, are my are my homies. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm particularly grateful to, to library readers and librarians for um, choosing me for mm. for this 
phenomenal award. I, I don't know who else I'm up against, but um, uh, still, it's it's a it's a wonderful. It's a wonderful honour to even make that kind of a shortlist. Absolutely. And um, that is a public vote. <laughs> yes. So people can can um, row in behind you and support your work and continue to support your work. They can. Yeah. Great. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank um, you. It's been it's been a real pleasure to chat to you about your work and about why you love books and how you came to them. Um, and uh, we look forward to seeing the next one. Thank you, Circa. Thank you so much. My name is Demet Bulger. I'm a novelist, uh, I'm a poet, I'm a playwright, uh, I'm a bald golfer, and um, for a number of years in my misspent youth, I was the worst ever library assistant in the history of Dublin County Council. No small achievement. I was quickly banished to the Siberian salt mines of the mobile libraries for many years, uh, and then I I dug my way to freedom uh, at the age of 24, and I have been making a living with the tin sliver of my imagination ever since. Thank you very much um, and thanks for being here. We're here in, in Drumcondra Library um, so we're probably picking up some of the live sounds of a, of a working library here behind us. Um, we'll chat maybe about your experience in the libraries as a... As Absolutely, a yeah. Uh, but my experience in libraries as um, a library assistant but also as when I grew up in Finglas, uh, there was no public library in Finglas. There was one built like later on but, and there was a small mobile library came twice a week uh, and uh, but occasionally, as a very special treat, um, I would get a bus down to Duncondra, and I'd get off on Moby Road, and I'd walk down a little laneway and through the, the park, through Griffith Park, to this very building, mm-hmm. because it had far more Enoch Blytons and all kinds of things yeah. that I might never explored. And I still remember the excitement of coming into this building because we had no library in Finglas, mm-hmm. and getting my my three books and walking back to the park and either walking home or getting the bus home. And so uh, this library always has a certain magical feel to me. And Mm -hmm. uh, in 1988, uh, with my late wife, uh, well, she wasn't my wife then, we we walked down the road here and there was a house for sale within 50 yards of the library and I I immediately put a bid on the house. Uh, Ironically, the person I bought the house from was a librarian. Wow. And and I've lived here ever since. And so this little corner uh, of Drumcondra feels miraculous to me for the park and the river, but primarily for the fact that there is a public library where we can go and we can get books for free. So the libraries have obviously been a significant part of your life. Yes. For your whole life. They actually had an allure of glamour about them because um, where the mobile library parked in Finglas um, was very, very close to where the most beautiful girl in Finglas lived. <laughs> and uh, the actual and there was a period uh, of my, my childhood when I would stand in this long line of children with Irina Blytons under her arm waiting to get into the library. And uh, the door of a house would open and the most beautiful girl in Finglas would emerge with a tray. And the tray had chocolate biscuits and it had tea and sugar and everything else. And her boyfriend walked in the library. Okay. And she would scatter the children in, in her wake and she would go and she would put the tray uh, of this beautiful everything on the actual table. So I realised that, that 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 library and librarianship was a really glamorous thing. If these beautiful <laughs> women did this for you, you know. And then one day she emerged with no tray, 
She scattered us all to one side, but she made no tray. She got to the actual um, the uh, counter and she slapped <gasps> the library assistant hard across the face and walked off. And I realised that books were dangerous and mysterious and so possibly were libraries. So wow. this is maybe why I, 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 I chose to move from being a factory hand to being a library assistant. Okay. And but, what but, they, but they were never, it was never as exciting as that. Never? No, no one slapping you across the face? No, no, uh, sitting across no, the counter? Not so far. <laughs> and what was the move? then from factory hand to library assistant like? Well, it, it was very strange because um, I had left school at 18. I had founded um, a little community arts organisation called um, um, Raven Arts Press, which does many of the things, that, uh, things access now does, but didn't really bad with no money. And we had like monster arts festivals attended by two men and a dog. I remember I was having a guitar workshop at the, at the top of a flight of stairs in Fingers Village, and uh, two skinheads coming in and holding the guitarist over the um, over the stairs and threatening to throw him down. And unless one pound fifty was delivered for them to get coke and chips, and so it was I was, I was all, it was it was all cutting edge, but very very low key. Okay. Uh, I remember giving my first reading in Ballymun in a tower block. So I was doing all the stuff, and we were photocopying poems and making little and selling them on pubs and things and then I got a job as, as, as a factory hand uh, in Orlikin uh, which was um, a welding rod factory in uh, the Unander Industrial Complex and my first novel Night Shift is the welding rod's sole contribution to world literature and uh, I came home from the night shift one night and, and Fianna Fáil had come to power and they decided to spend our way out of recession by inventing loads of jobs in public service. And I came home and were five letters sitting on the, on, on, on the mat, the postman. I came out, my shift finished at half seven in the morning, so it, it must have been very early. And there were job offers from, it's hard to believe now, from um, library assistant to Dublin County Council, library assistant to Dublin Corporation, library assistant, uh, clerical officer, the uh, Dublin County Council, clerical officer, Dublin County Council and the ESB. Okay. The first one I opened was was um, for um, the County Council, and that's where I went. And so it, it was it was obviously where and you had loads. We had this extraordinary influx of. Um, Young people from all over the country all have been suddenly offered jobs, which which actually meant that there was a there was like a recruitment embargo around ten years later because mm. there was so, the staff were so overstaffed that basically nobody could be hired again, and it was wondrous to uh, I'm going to read one poem uh, about this, but it was wondrous to go from because the the we had a shop steward in the factory in Fingers who felt that the revolution began by Karl Mar- not began by Karl Marx but began by Vladimir Lenin really in in um, in Russia should end in Fingless and we had us on an, you know, a walk to rule and strikes and there was all kinds of you know, you're, you're, you're a school, a school boy or schoolgirl and there's thought of you and one teacher when you, when you go into a factory and suddenly there are men twice three times your age mm-hmm. there's a hundred of them and there's one of you and it's a whole different thing and then going into and it, going into the libraries suddenly I was surrounded by all these um, beautiful young women and uh, very, very, uh, very, with great integrity, I, uh, I felt totally in love with each of them in turn. <laughs> and with great integrity, uh, they uh, did not return my feelings in turn. <laughs> and they all lived in small towns. The first girl I fell in love with was from Mohill in County Leitrim, which I believe is known primarily for the ugliness of a cement factory. But for me, it was the Venice of Connemara. <laughs> and uh, I've never, I've always never been there, but now as I drive around Ireland on these motorways and you, everything's bypassed. So you see these place names mm-hmm. 
And these place names all conjure up to me somebody of 20 or 21 whom I worked with in some bench library. Uh, and and they used to, there was a, Mae Binchy wrote a wonderful book called... Um, the Lilac Bus, and it was all about uh, young people from the country going home on these uh, semi-legal buses uh, on a Friday evening. Yeah. And so uh, they, they used to all go home at the weekends, and this was just poem is called Going Home for Christmas and is and is and it is about my memories of starting work in, in the libraries in the 1980s. Going Home for Christmas. Mohill and Abbey Fail, Kinvara and Ratvili were the hometowns of girls for whom my feelings went silently unrequited in the branch libraries. I had requisitioned road atlases shelved at 912.415 and traced our weekly homecoming by private bus to Lewisburg and Ferns, remote realms of Offaly. Each girl's place name in turn so captivated me that now passing road signs for them in December I cannot see narrow streets of small shop windows advertising local bands and Christmas club specials. It's the effervescent features of young girls I see with strands of tumbleweed hair illuminating the roadway, sweeping back, twisting around corners to light up damp alleyways and bustling main streets where buses from the past offer them to alight into the arms of loved ones and lovers at Christmas in Mohill and Abbeyfield, Kinvara and Ratvili, ghosts from the 1980s in their first flame of beauty. And that's what walking the libraries felt like. It's really beautiful because it, I think it captures the the sense of possibility and the complete openness of youth, um, and you know that sense of as a young man working in the libraries that not only were you working in the libraries but you were also falling in love, and through falling in love you were also discovering names and places, and you know the the, well, the kind of whole country li- of Ireland. World of 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 the, 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 the library has four or five worlds, and there's the world there's a child going in and there's the world of walking there and making friends and, and you were always being moved around because it was a bit like I, I, when I became a playwright it reminded me of this because you, you'd, you'd have a cast walking together and they'd all be great friends and then the play would end and they, they would all go different ways and then they'd meet up again and they'd just p- pick up where they left off and the same thing in the, in the libraries there was a transfer list every eight, nine months and, and you know from, from walking in Shankill you'd be walking in Cabin Teeley you'd be walking in Tala you'd be walking, and you'd be, but you knew all these people so there was this whole community uh, and many marriages came out of that community uh, uh, as, as I remember uh, not, not my own but many, many marriages and uh, so but then there was also the libraries, as that you saw, being used. But you, you saw, like, uh, there was when I walked in Don Drum, there was a, a tramp died in the library, mm-hmm. and he was a man who just came in and liked to sit there, mm-hmm. uh, and he would read books. He would, and so, and sometimes to tease the actual, um, the sort of, um, if, if he was getting like dirty looks, he would hold the book upside down. <laughs> but but like he was exercising his right. This was a public space to be there. And one day we discovered he was dead in the chair mm. uh, as we were closing the library. So there was that. But then you also had. Particularly during the recession, uh, the collapse of the Celtic Tiger, the libraries became incredibly important places because um, very often fathers who had lost their jobs, uh, and many mothers lost their jobs as well, but, 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 but fathers who had lost their jobs felt a bit ashamed of bringing their kids to school in the morning because there's always that big cluster of mothers at the gate and they sort of felt, that, oh, I, I don't want to feel this way. But, and, but, and, but they could bring their children to the library. 
Mm-hmm. So they brought their children to the library in the afternoon, and that gave them the sort of thing that was... There. And then they discovered that there were computers in the library, and there were newspapers, and they could actually sort of you know, read up on jobs, or they could actually... They were thinking of starting a, a back-to-work course or starting a small business they could use. This is when computers weren't... weren't as re- Went necessarily in every home, or mm-hmm. they couldn't afford uh, the broadband, and uh, and and, they, and they, so the library became this hub of uh, people rebuilding their lives, and it was this sort of free space, and it was a space and you know, space where pensioners went to stay warm, and it was, and so you actually had as you walked in the library, and as you were then just a library user, uh, you began to see all the ways in which the library becomes uh, a focal point of a community, and it's the one last truly democratic space mm-hmm. nobody has ever asked me in a public library what i'm doing here mm-hmm. and i think it's it, it is so it's something that it's it's it's, it's a tradition and a legacy that we need to treasure and we need to really preserve absolutely and it, it strikes me as well that as a, as a somebody working in the library it's quite an intimate experience of the library it's not very many people get to work behind the scenes and get mm. to see the the power of it and the importance of it from behind the counter. I'd like to kind of explore the the experience you had moving from being uh, you know working in in the factory to working in the library and then all the way through you were you were writing and you were yes. reading and how did you kind of at what point did you realize that this was this was the thing that you wanted to do? I think when I was around 14, okay. uh, I actually realised I wanted to be a writer. And really, um, there was a really, really fine poet called Anthony Cronin who wrote a great column in the Irish Times, who's who been a great uh, contemporary of, um, younger, uh, of, of Bean and Kavanagh and Flannel Bryan and wrote the best book about literary life ever, which is Gail's Dead as Doornails. And I was a friend of Beckett's and wrote a great biography of Beckett and, and was a really, you know, great public intellectual mm-hmm. and uh, he said I met him when I was 15 and we became very very good friends I was a publisher of most of his life uh, of his poetry and uh, he said many things he, he said one is that the, there were two schools of poetry one farming in universities and one farming outside universities and be really wise to be outside the universities and then he also said there's a lot to be said for burning every bridge behind you and so uh, I actually, you know, I, I didn't go to college. I didn't have the option to go to college anyway, but I never decided. I, I, I never felt I missed anything. I think I always felt that the Orlikan Welding Factory was my university, and I learned an awful lot about life in there. And when I joined the libraries, I deliberately never went for any promotion or anything else. I remained because the, the higher up those chains of walk you go, the harder it is to give to give things up. Mm-hmm. Whereas actually, so I always kept deliberately. And the, and the, the women who ran the libraries, they were all women who ran the libraries. They were all that generation who had to choose between having a job and having a family because you, you had to give up your career in the public service mm-hmm. when you were, um, when you married. And, you know, you, no, not when I joined, but by the, when the, the, the people who were all in the 50s like and 60s, these women had, yes, had to make yeah. decisions, I told you before. And they were very motherly to me because I lost my mother when I was very young. And they all wanted this you know, sent me to university on behalf of the libraries and get me qualified as a library as a librarian. But I just said no, I really don't want. Cause, and then I got my career break, Marina Bourne arranged, and she was very good that she had 
um, I had been, I had a stupid notion that writers were meant to be like, meant to drink and carouse and be like Ben and Bean. I mean, when Ben Bean began drinking carouse, he basically lost all of his ability as a writer. Mm-hmm. The last few books were written, were transcribed into a tape record and everything else. So, so, so I, I did, I, I was slightly wild youth at the age of 20, 21, 22. And Maureen O'Bourne, um she actually sent me to, to the Siberian salt mines of the mobile libraries, which was actually great because I had enormous freedom there. Mm-hmm. And then the the guy running the library was like a tankless old librarian, um, and he hated my guts. <laughs> and he was also a very bad librarian. And uh, so I met Maya Bourne years later, and, and she never transferred me from the mobiles. And she said, you know, Charlie... Yeah, that was his name. He used to come into her every week, and his first thing on the request was transfer bulger, transfer bulger. And and I said, and and she said to me one time, the way it was, is that I actually kept you in the libraries because, firstly, from my point of view, you're out of my hair, and you couldn't disgrace me like that incident at Christmas in in, in Dundrum Library at the time you kicked the door down in in the library headquarters, and you know, and and so that was so for me out of my hair, for you. It was the best place to be because it gave you the maximum amount of freedom to write and the maximum amount of freedom to actually develop your publishing company and your artistic abilities. And so for you, it, it was the most relaxed place and you were Charlie's penance. <laughs> and I always love people who do things for not just one, but for several reasons. And uh, But I, I actually then left and I always remember being absolutely petrified of how would I make a living. Mm-hmm. And I got a taxi home to Fingers. I was out. Um, I had a few drinks in town and I got a taxi on fingers. And the taxi driver said something very interesting. He said that he gave up a job from some factory to become a taxi uh, driver. And he said he woke up the next morning, the first morning, and he couldn't get out of bed. He was paralysed with fear mm. at just how he would survive and all the worries he had. And then eventually he got out of bed and he never feared again. You know, yeah. and so you just go on with it. And so... Um, I've survived by I've had, I've had good years and bad years but and I always say if I go into school I'm talking to kids and there's a boys particularly I say this that, that you know I had a brother who was a much better footballer than me and uh, it was League of Ireland standard he, he didn't bother playing League of Ireland for long he just he wasn't uh, it wasn't water but I said if you're if your dream is to be a footballer it doesn't really matter if you play for Manchester United or Macclesfield Town the idea that you can make a living from your boots should be magic enough. Mm-hmm. And the idea that I can make a living from writing is still magical to me at the age of um, what, 62 and three quarters. <laughs> oh, 62 and a half. I don't want to make too half, old. Yeah. Yeah, I <laughs> um, I, I, that, uh, that kind of idea of being paralysed by fear and then never fearing again, mm. is it's really powerful. And it, it takes, I think, a lot of bravery to leave what is... Uh, a situation, you know, a library job, a job with the, the council, a place where there's options for you to, to kind of progress and to say, no, actually, I'm going to focus on publishing. Oh. I'm going to focus yeah. on writing. Um, that's that's a very courageous decision to make. Yeah, it, it, and it helps make it as young as possible because uh, you don't, you know, I wasn't married at the time. Yeah. And, and then when I got married in 88, well, probably the most courageous decision when I got married in 88, 
and just bought this house across the road here. Uh, Philip Case was one of the poets I, I published, and he had a friend called Paddy Dial, and Paddy Dial had written a book called The God Squad that nobody would publish, and it was mm. the first memoir about institutional abuse okay. in Ireland. Paddy was in a wheelchair, and he'd had a ter- horrendous childhood. He only, he only died um, very recently, and he was he was a wonderful, marvellous, courageous figure. And uh, But nobody, nobody would publish his book. And so Raven Arts decided to publish the book, mm-hmm. and we knew that if we were sued, we'd lose the house, we'd lose everything. Mm-hmm. And um, it went on the Late Late Show, Paddy went on the Late Late Show, and the whole country was transfixed by a story, and the book sold thousands of copies, and actually paid for the house. So, so it was this extraordinary thing. So I, I think I staged the first events in Fingless Library. I wasn't working there, but, like, yeah. but, but the library assistant gave me space. And like, people like Ivan Boland came out, and Brendan Kennelly came out. Like, they weren't being paid by the library, they were just coming out, out as friends of mine, uh, and gave readings, and suddenly, you know, you had things happening in libraries, mm-hmm. and... Uh, but it, it, it was so it was interesting to see the libraries as they were then, uh, and and the the headquarters of Dublin County Council was of the libraries was above Kilmainham Courthouse. Okay, and it was exciting because you were going in with all the criminals, <laughs> and it was somebody said. Somebody said to a friend of mine, your man Bulger must have a fierce criminal record. <laughs> I've gone by that 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 Kilmainham courthouse seven or eight times and I've seen him go in. Like, <laughs> and some of the rare books were actually kept on the balcony of the courthouse. Okay. So occasionally a request from book would come in. Now this just wasn't a public library, this was yes. the headquarters. Yeah. And the library assistant, these wonderful women, Mary and Carmel, they'd say, damn it, then you find that book, whatever. And I'd have to crawl out on my hands and knees while the court was going on. Wow. And, and of course, if I raised my head, I'd be in contempt of court. <laughs> so, so, I'd, I'd be visible. I'd be yes. interrupting proceedings, you know. So, so from that side, very, very, very Dickensian world that hadn't yes, changed yeah. in decades, to go into libraries now and see the way they operate. I mean, I, I do, I'm not a huge fan of, I don't think library staff, particularly, of this thing of automated libraries, of mm-hmm. libraries with no staff and everything else, because that interaction, that mm-hmm. you had with people, and I, 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 you learned also in the libraries, very often there were people coming in and they were having like a two-minute conversation with you. It was a casual conversation, but it was the only conversation that they were going to have mm-hmm. with, with another soul that, that day. It is amazing, actually, in all the conversations I've been having with librarians and uh, library staff and library users, the thing that comes out the most is the human contact. Yeah. That's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. The books are super important, obviously, the access to all of the resources, but the most important resource is the librarian and the library staff. And the thing that they enjoy most and the thing that they've missed the most over the past while is interacting with people. And that's such a huge Mm -hmm. uh, part of it. You must have... um, I suppose interacted with all sorts in the in the mobile libraries. Yeah, I, I did. I did. Yeah. Is that, are you leading me to reading a poem? Well, I was going to see if you had, you, you mentioned you had another one. So. There is actually, yeah, which, is, which is just uh, I have a new book of poems coming out next year. It's funny, the lockdown has made me write poems for the first yeah. time in ten years, and I have a new book called Other People's Lives coming out. Okay. And it's it's uh, these are poems that I wrote walking around on Condra and um, last Nevin during the lockdown. I'm just remembering, and this was um, my favourite borrower was a woman called Isabella Lucinda Bright. She's a fantastic a name. fantastic name, or Lucy, as she was known locally. And uh, we used to stop literally at Dundrum, as I had done a big golf club. Near, there's, there's a hotel there, and there's, I think it was called Dunes, it's called something else now. And I stopped there, and at dark nights, and Lucy used to get a lift across. Uh, she, she had a small 
uh, course, cobbles golf course for a few cottages, and a neighbour on a tractor would give a lift to Janice. And so this is so this is in memory of of Lucy, and I still see a tiny figure like, coming into the library, and it was a magic of those little. You know, There's such an insignificant service, but like going out there for people like Lucy and for all those other people in remote places, this was the weekly commun- com- you know, communication with people. You know, so this is called a sonnet for Isabella Lucinda Bright. On the edge of nowhere, the mobile library stops. In wintry darkness beside a seaside golf course, surely nobody awaits us on such a stormy night. But a hand appears once we open up the door, arthritic fingers gripping the rail sufficiently tight for her to slowly ascend the steps into the van. Having accepted a lift on the back of a tractor from a house between the links and seashore, Radiant at 91, Isabella Lucinda Bright bestows a weekly greeting on us library staff, her jests, her vest and energy banishing the winter dark as she asks, as usual, for two detective novels and if we might have a book by Samuel Beckett because his mordant wit still makes her laugh. It's a, it, again, a beautiful kind of capturing of a moment, but also of an experience for that woman to be, you know, her neighbour is collecting her and bringing her in the tractor. Yeah. She's then engaging with you. And it really does capture that sense of you as a as a library assistant, maybe only meeting her once every two weeks. Yeah. But for her, that was such a significant moment in her well, in the time, timetable of her they, they are that, that lifeline for so mm-hmm. many people, and, and the mobiles were that lifeline for so many so many people, and and you got to meet all 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 kinds of people. And actually, probably my best moment ever as a library assistant was uh, uh, the mobiles used to close for, for for a couple of weeks in the summer, and you'd be sent to. An actual library to do some work. I remember I've been sent to Blanchetown Library. I was shagged. Jesus, the amount of work you had to do. It was non-stop, like. You know? yeah. I remember, like, it was beside a pub. I remember just going to the pub afterwards and ordering a drink. I didn't want to drink, but just, I, just, I just needed to sit down for an hour before I went home. But there was a woman came in and her son had a terrible stammer. Mm-hmm. And he was nine years of age and she was trying to get him to ask me for some book and he was really, really struggling, you know. And I, I said to her, you know, and I, I said to him, what team do you support? And he said, Manchester United. And I said something else. And then I had the told question. I said, what book do you want? And he said, the book. And, and I said to her, I had a stammer 10 times worse than he has when I was his age. And I over I overcame it, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and, and that was a trick that a shopkeeper told me in in, in one particular shopkeeper because I think they used to ask for everything in the shops or in supermarkets. Uh, you know, uh, he would change the thing because people get fixated when they're stammer on what they have to say, and then mm-hmm. they can never say it. And she just and she just said, "You you've given me such hope." You've no stammer now, and, and and I felt that of all the no, no matter how many motor manuals I gave out or mm. many travel books or anything else, that was one moment that this woman could see that her son, that this wasn't something that he would be permanently afflicted with for life. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or that if he was afflicted with it in a way that st- I still have a small trace of it, that he would learn to live with it and it would yes. just become part of his character and he wouldn't even notice it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. God, that's an amazing, amazing moment to... to well, those are the things that, that because you have... And that was just by fluke. I was the person who was there. Mm-hmm. And as a writer, uh, you every character that you write is an amalgam of 50 people you've mm-hmm. met. And um, 
the and all those little stories. And I never keep a notebook. Mm-hmm. I never write anything about people. But I remember those things lodge in, lodge in your mind. I remember meeting Breen Moore, who was um, or Brian Moore, but Breen Moore, as you guys know, comes up, who was a great uh, novelist from Belfast, whose novels were published all over the world. And he was a very interesting man. Now he lived in Malibu, and he's sort of forgotten now. Next day, he said, "Pity," but um, and he said to me, "I, I lead a, a surrogate existence." And I said, "How do you mean, And he said, "Well, almost everybody I meet now, I'm on the phone, is like a publisher, of an agent, or a publicist, or works and the thing, and then they tell me about their families and their friends, and so I learn about life secondhand." I'm not really meeting people mm-hmm. in the way that I used to meet people. Everybody I meet is in the business. They're all in the trade. And I, and I find that a little bit part of my life now. When I, when I, like today, I've, 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 I think I've spoken to three journalists, two publishers and four writers, just uh, our emails, just, 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 yeah. just stuff to do with, with business. I'm, 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 I'm like a sorting office between all these different, all these different people and everything else I'm dealing with. But in some ways, you're, but no, I'm, I go to the park and I walk in the evening, but that sort of, you know, the, in terms of the characters that populate my novels, mm-hmm. a lot of them come from that thing when I was sitting behind a desk in a mobile library or anything, and I was meeting the world and, and his mother, and that and that is, there's no substitute for a writer mm. of human contact and human experience. And I've never stolen somebody's life, I've never, I've never sort of, but, but all those little uh, characteristics and all those little stories that, that, that people tell you, they become the stuff of fiction and the stuff mm-hmm. of plays. Yeah, that's amazing, and you're right, like what... what um uh, um, a, f- a beautiful kind of collection of people that you can draw from. I'm. You mentioned um, bringing your friends to events and and putting on events in Finglas Library. Mm, yeah. That was after you finished working with the with the libraries, or was it while you were still working with the libraries? It was, it was a mixture of both, really. Okay. Because I I, I set up this thing called Raven Arts Press in Finglas in 1977, and uh, I mean, my, my, the first novel, the first book we published was. Um, Paid for by my wages from the from the welding rod factory and uh, was printed by a guy in a shed who you know normally printed football pools coupons and, and then we then we went, we went up market we actually had a lot of books printed by uh, Michael Smallfoot he just didn't know it we actually had we used the Fingness Mafia and there were lads I was in school but who actually worked in the printers and and they you know we would meet occasionally it was, it was like a drug deal yeah. there'd, there'd, there'd be like a gap in the wire fence and there'd be a fistful of fivers going one way and and, and ten boxes of books going the other way. And, <laughs> And so we literally, with no money, we sort of began to publish books, and we didn't know what we were doing, but we just we wanted to create art, and so uh, that that was going on parallel. With, and in some ways, that that was why Maureen O'Bone gave me that so much mm-hmm. space in the mobile libraries. Uh, but eventually, it came a time where I just couldn't mm-hmm. do both. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't be 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 a a, a publisher and author and a library assistant and we had to make the break so 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 I, I, I can't remember exactly the sequence but but there were some was before and, and, so, and some after but 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 even when i was doing them i was doing them not as a library assistant but yes. in in that other parallel life i had as um the man what run the arts and things and how did you how did you choose what what you published how did the work like how, did the work come to you did people come to you and say we have work that we want to publish or yeah. did you go on a on no, a hunt no the work it, it came in both ways it, it came that um, we, we, we deliberately we were publishing local poets but we didn't want to be confined to that mm-hmm. we always we always said that we want to be a publisher and we want and we always put uh, published in uh, in Fingness on, on all the book covers but we published uh, I mean the first poet we published was a poet called uh, Sidney Bennett Smith and 
and uh, Michael Lachlan, who was from Sink and Fingness and, and, and uh, now lives in Ireland, but lived in Amsterdam and Barcelona and was very interesting and uh, fascinating man. He was uh, in, in his boffin and he saw this small fat man digging potatoes with a spade and the spade broke. And he kicked the spade and he coursed it in seven languages. And Mick said, this sounds like an interesting man. And he, <laughs> and, and he, and he followed him to the pub. And uh, he was a poet who'd had some books published in the 60s. Uh, very, very experimental, very, very different from anything being published in Ireland. And Mick came back with this manuscript of poems. Okay. And, I, and I said, we should publish it. And how has your relationship with the libraries changed now that you are a writer and you have your work is kind of stocked in the libraries? And what's that experience like? It's actually uh, the most... The strangest thing is that you you know one goes around the country and you meet the county librarian of X county or Y county and you look at her and then you say, did the pervos once sit under a table at a party and wrap mines in a bed sit with a bottle of whiskey and a big plate of um, chocolate rice krispies that we'd stolen off the table? <laughs> And you suddenly realise all these very disreputable people uh, are now very respectable uh, uh, head librarians, you know, Uh, but but probably all heading for retirement now. So uh, you actually have that sometimes as you go around the country, occasionally you meet people you walked with. Um, But uh, I I, I appreciate how hard it is to walk in the library because it it can be very, very tough walk and very demanding and you can be dealing with some difficult people and and you're trying to trace books down and everything else. And uh, so my, my relationship... To write primarily as um, you know, um, Flann O'Brien, Brian Nolan said that the sign of a good education, the sign of a good Torah education, was that one should always be able to knock out a break of twenty-five on a snooker table, no matter how bad the surface. And uh, I always think the sign of the sign of being a reasonable man, letters, a woman of letters, a person of letters, is that one should always be not be able to knock out a thousand words on any subject at two hours' notice. And so, you know, uh, one of the ways I make a living is that newspapers phone me up. Uh, I, I say today I've written a two and a half thousand word piece about about a writer who's died, uh, and um, at very short notice, and ask me like what I write about this and everything else. And I would have general knowledge, but then you need specialised knowledge, and just I don't trust. Wikipedia. I don't trust those things. I understand libel. I understand facts. And just being able to leave my house and walk 50 yards to the library and go in and generally any fact I need confirmed is confirmed on these shelves. So, mm. so, 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 so the library for me is a, is, is a very, very useful workplace in that I'm checking facts to, 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 facts to hold them. I, I don't read much fiction, um, but I, I use it for that. And uh, in the old um, pre-COVID days, I, I enjoyed coming in and reading the paper you know? yeah. <laughs> and, and just getting out of the house for, for 20 minutes so if, if you live alone as well it's yeah. nice to be out of the house so and and just seeing different generations come through the library and and, and, and it's nice so uh and, and then of course i was a, a father and i my, my children loved the library and bringing to bringing the children to the library seeing the children discover books is is lovely you know so you you just see it in 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 all of its incarnations and mm-hmm. and a lot of libraries have changed. Even the library in Vingness, think, is changing. A new one has been built in Vingness, and the, the one in Vanchestown where I walked in is now another place, something else. But this library is still, and this building 
and Ringsend Library and Injiko Library are all the same exact design built in the 1930s in a modernist style and it's just a lovely space to be in. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much um, for sharing your experience of the libraries, for sharing your beautiful poems. Um, it is amazing to be talking to somebody in a space that you've had such a lifelong relationship with this building and with the libraries. So thank you so much for sharing all that with and us. And thank you for arranging the amnesty uh, of the fines from me being so <laughs> in the books back. <laughs> thank Cheers. you very much. Thank you. I want to thank my guests for joining me on the Belong Beyond podcast and the staff at the libraries for their warm welcome. The Belong Beyond project is a collaboration between the Dublin City Libraries and Axis Ballymun and is funded by the Dormant Accounts Fund. You'll find details of this podcast and all the other elements of the Belong Beyond project on the Dublin City Libraries and Axis Ballymun websites as well as across our social media channels. Thank you. A full list of podcast guests is available on the Dublin City Libraries and Axis Ballymun websites. This podcast was recorded by Clodagh Mooney Duggan and Jer Kellett, edited by Stephen Crawley, sound design by Derek Conaghy.